Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight we're looking at the 10th lecture, which is entitled Strange Bedfellows, Israel and France, 52-56. Anytime you mention the French and Bedfellows, it kind of stirs certain things up there. But, the, but it's, not, it's, not, it's not so inappropriate as you'll see tonight. Let me start by saying that we're dealing here with the relationship with England and France, so we're focusing on a country usually we don't spend too much time on in Jewish history, and that's France. Um, but in order to understand what's happening, there's a history talk, so you've got to go back to the beginning. Unlike England, which has had a monarchy for a, a th- well over a thousand years, with only one break at the time of Oliver Cromwell, but all the rest of the time, it, you know, king after king, queen after queen, France has a history of chronic instability, political instability. And therefore, they've gone through many phases over and over again. They still don't have it totally right. So, for example, you had the monarchy, right, which lasted for a thousand years. Then, of course, you had the First Republic, as they call it, which was distinguished by chopping up the head of the king and <laughs> thousands of other people. Then, of course, the First Republic didn't last too long, from 1789 to 1797 or something, until uh, Napoleon took over. I'm even skipping a little bit over here. They had the First Consulate, and then Napoleon, what they call in France, the First Empire, Empire Premier. Then, you, we're not finished. Napoleon leaves power. Then they have the Restoration, where they go back to the Bourbons. Then that fell apart in the 1830s, and they had what they called the July Monarchy, under the Orleanists. Then you had the Second Republic, where Louis uh, uh, Napoleon becomes the president of France. They have the Second Empire, where the president declares himself emperor. We had a few cases of people want to do that in American history as well. They, um, then, of course, then, of course, uh, they, but look, you know, it's, it's, it's musical chairs. I'm not finished, though. Then, in 1870, they have the famous defeat by Prussia, Bismarck crushes France, I mean, absolutely smashes them, and then the French establish what's called the Third Republic, which is, as you see in this wonderful picture over here, split right down the middle. The Third Republic is because they couldn't decide on a monarchy, they couldn't decide on this, and there was this bid the event, you know, until we figure out what to do, we'll set up a republic. I remember there had been the First Republic where they chopped the guy's head off, there was a Second Republic where Louis Napoleon was elected president of France, and now it's the Third Republic. See how it goes in France? The Third Republic is, is characterized, it lasts for 70 years. The Third Republic is characterized by the chronic battles between the two Frances, the left and the right. Now, I don't mean over here the communist left in the way we talk about it now. The left and the right in French politics, especially in the old days, meant, do you want to bring back the Catholic monarchy with all that stuff, or do you want to hold a republic with the republican ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity? If you're Jewish, it's very important because the left is in favor of Jewish civil rights, which was granted not by the kings, but by the republic. The same guys that chopped off the head gave the Jews civil rights. If you're on the right, you say the whole French Revolution was a big mistake, including giving civil rights to the Jews, and the Catholic Church should be in charge of everything, particularly education and all kind of other business, and there are constant political battles all through the 1870s and the 80s and 90s. Many of you will be familiar with the climactic battle between the left and the right in French politics, by the way, you see over here, half of France follows the Catholics, as, as in this picture. Half of France follows uh, Marianne, the, the uh, symbol of uh, the French re- Republic with the tricolor. Uh, to the left, she's like a saint, and to the right, she's a whore. That's what they call her. 
So in other words, yeah, big battles uh, in ideological form, it's kind of funny. We in America today are getting to this point where the left and the right is not just a question of politics, you know, in favor of Obamacare or something like that. It's really a cultural war, isn't it? Cultural strong in many re- regards. In France, they had this in a big, vicious way. It reached its climax in the late 1890s with the next time, with the famous Dreyfus affair. The right was against Dreyfus. They're the ones who railroaded him, who framed him. Because of a Jewish, you know the whole story. They accused him of being a spy, and they broke him in the ranks and all the rest of it. The left was personified by Emile Zola, whose famous line was, truth is on the march, and nothing can stop it. So even though you have all these cover-ups, even though we have this crookedness, and we know that you framed them with false documents, and the whole Dreyfus business, relentless pressure from the left, kept saying that, you know, we're going to get to the truth, and we'll prove, and it wasn't because he was a Jew, it was in spite of the fact that he was a Jew. You see? Zola himself said, I don't like Jews, but he didn't do it. <laughs> you see? Get over it. And, uh, the left has a complete triumph. Well, at least it seems that way. The right never agrees that Dreyfus wasn't guilty, but the left wins at the polls. And as a result, around 1900 and 1902 and so forth in France, the left uh, gains big majorities in the French parliament, and they drive the Catholic Church out of the school system totally, and they drive the, the church and all the things as much as they can out of the army, and they pass all kind of secularization laws, which is why it is not considered weird in France to make a law, as you and I know, against the Muslim scarf, whatever they call that, right, a couple years ago, which is still in the books. And the idea is, in America, you say, oh, you're doing religious freedom. No, in France, they have laïcité, the lay people versus the, the, the clergy, and that's an essential part of the French Republic. So you have a country with all these kind of battles over here. There's the triumph of the left and the sullenness and resentment of the right. Then comes the crucible of the First World War, in which France loses one and a half million and, and killed in battle from stupid battles. Clemenceau, of course, you, you will recall, was the famous French leader, prime minister in France, a, a, an icon of the left. Clemenceau was the champion of Dreyfus. He's the one who published J'accuse. I accuse. Remember Emil Zola's famous letter, I'm sure many are familiar with, where he says, I call a spade a spade. This is what the French government is, 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 is uh, framing him, and they're all liars. And he says, and sue me. I accuse the president of the Republic for being part of this. I accuse the prime minister and the chief of staff and all the rest of it for being a bunch of crooks. And sue me. Um, and so you see, it's a, a very, what should I say, bubbling politics that characterizes the France and the Third Republic. The position of the Jew is very interesting because um, this is the period when the Jews in France, most of them, super assimilate. And in return for super-assimilation, all government positions, in politics at least, are open to them, personified by the Prime Minister of France, Leon Blum, who is, of course, obviously is Jewish. And uh, these are super-assimilated Jews. They, if, if you go to the best school and you get the high grades, right, they call them normal superior and places like that, and you really go ahead and so forth. You know, you can you can have a, a top career. Others are different positions in the um, what shall I say in the in the, in the ministries and the uh, governments and so forth. And so uh, France and the Third Republic is a place where Jews have a shot at things, even though there's still also a very strong anti-Semitic right wing that resents everything that I just um, described. Um, I would also throw in that in the Third Republic, all this is important. France. Um, had just been defeated very bitterly by Bismarck, by Prussia, by Germany. And as a matter of fact, the Germans rubbed in their nose. The Germans proclaimed the United States of Germany, what they call the German Empire, in Versailles. Right? If you know your, your history, you can, you can Google it. 
Bismarck and the King of Prussia and all the other German princes, you know, salute the King of Prussia as the Kaiser, the German Kaiser, um, in Versailles. In other words, we're, we're establishing our country <laughs> in, in your palace, you know, because we, we conquered you, which they did. And uh, this leads France to lose Alsace-Lorraine, those two famous provinces that will be a bone of contention, probably still are to some degree, and because part German, part French. And uh, France responds to this under the Third Republic by trying to conquer a world empire. And that means they go to what's called the Third World. And uh, here, let's take this. This is the French Empire. It's, it's not so small. This is France. Look at the big piece of Africa they took over. Okay, in the 1880s, 1890s. I mean, it's a big chunk. And Madagascar. And Indochina, Vietnam, and all that. Plus little other pieces. Like, who gave them the right to do that? France has the right. We have the mission to bring civilization. Everybody knows French are high civilization. Mission civilatrice. Right? To all the benighted peoples of the world and all the rest. And they get away with it. Uh, instead of a big empire... That means that France is going to be a rival with the other big empire, England. And between the two of them, they own a nice piece of the world. Let's take a look at this. Here's the, obviously in this color, is the French empire that we just saw before. And the British ain't doing too bad either. I mean, they got the whole right, right through the bone of Africa there, don't they? Plus the Indian empire, plus the commonwealth, which they, they stole this from the French in the Seven Years' War. And, you know, my point is like this. Two rival imperialisms. That each one is a coming very close to clashing over Karka in Asia or in Africa or a place like this, but they are forced together to become partners by the greater threat of Germany. And so you know and I know that in World War I and World War II, England and France, willy-nilly, whether they like it or not, find themselves in each other's arms and uh, the French army and the British army fight together against the Germans, but it ain't so pushant. You understand? Because as they're doing so, the French are always suspecting the British, are they going to stick it to us again? The British always, the French, are they going to cheat us or, you know, go on one of the crazy French Michigas and try to take over something? It's very, very interesting. By the way, the, the Balfour Declaration and all that is, takes place within the Sykes-Picot Agreement, takes place within the context of this French-British rivalry slash alliance that, is, uh, on, that only, the Brit only the Europeans can come up with. Um, as we know, the Third Republic, as they call it, crashed by Hitler in 1940, when he smashed the German army, uh, the French army, one, two, three. It's very interesting. France fought like a, like a rock in the First World War, and they bled themselves white. But as the famous uh, statement was, Il ne passe pas, we will not let the Germans pass through, and they didn't. Uh, in, in World War II, they went down like a house of cards. Right? There are the reasons for it. But that's what happened. And then you have the iconic scene over here, right, of the German army marching in triumph for the second time right through the Arc de Triomphe, as you know, in Paris, okay, they're, they're repeating what Bismarck did. You understand? So if you're German, it just doesn't get better than this. And Hitler was, as you may sometimes recall from this, he was dancing. He couldn't hold himself back. This was their big, their big huge triumph, and here's the German general saluting the truth. I mean, it doesn't get better than this if you're German, and it doesn't get worse if you're a Frenchman. Okay? So that's what we call the end of the Third Republic. Um, once again, when the Germans occupy France in the 1940s, you know, 40 to 44, um, right versus left. The right pops up under Marshal Pétain. And what they do is they identify with Hitler. And, I mean, they're not crazy about him. They like to get more France stuff back, and they figure maybe eventually they would. But they identify with the fascist, with the Nazi program, especially um, 
giving, killing all the Jews. They're, they're totally fine with that. And they cooperate with Hitler fully and killing all the French Jews, everyone they can get their hands on. You have to understand that. Um, Marshal Pétain, who was the hero of Verdun in the First World War, is the villain in the Second World War. No, no he's Catholic. He's the leader of the right. He thinks that the French Revolution and all the liberal stuff was a bad idea. He doesn't want gay rights and so forth. You know, he wants to go back to the old France of Louis IV's time with traditional, patriarchal, uh, very conservative kind of values, family and, and all that sort of thing. And um, they collaborate with Hitler. On the other hand, that's not the only France. Charles de Gaulle, uh, who was a, uh, just a, a brigadier general or something like this, but he flies to England and becomes the leader of the Free French. And so in effect, it's the left versus the right in this particular way. And now, all, everything I'm telling you will have to do with Israel. Okay, I assure you. Um, the, 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 it's, it's the left versus the right, but what does that mean? The right delegitimates itself by cooperation with Hitler. You understand? By the time the war's over, for four years, as you know, the, 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 um, for four years, the Germans rule France, um, but de Gaulle tries to get right away as many Frenchmen as he can, uh, to make a free French army, as they call it, and fight the Germans in North Africa. Here's, let's take a look at this. Here's the, uh, you, you'll listen to this for a second. The free French army in, in Africa fighting against Rommel. Here's the French general Koenig. He'll be very important in our story. Pierre Koenig. He's fighting against Hitler. How's your French? The, um, the, no, but the point is like this. So they do get together some shtickle French forces, and they do fight and die, you know, for the Allies against Hitler. And this is their stake in saying, see, France is not a totally corrupt country. France is not a totally fascist country. There's some good guys also, not only the bad guys. Remember that General Kennedy. The, um, uh, eventually, in 1944, uh, the Germans lose, the Allies enter Paris. Here's the GIs entering pa Paris in liberation. It's the reverse picture of the Germans marching in. Okay? And here's the American army. They're more interested in girlfriends than anything else. But what else is new? And, uh, but, but really, after all the jokes are over, it was a, a tremendous liberation, right? For four years, they're under Hitler. Well, it's not so simple, is it? Lots of Frenchmen did okay under Hitler. That's, that's the dirty truth. Lots of them were collaborators, and they had jobs, and they made money, and they did. And to be perfectly honest, they weren't so bad with the getting rid of the Jews and killing off the communists and getting rid of the, the riffraff and all the rest of it. You know, they weren't crazy about the Germans, but they were okay with this sort of thing. But here's de Gaulle and uh, General Leclerc and, and the others finally saying, but France has restored its honor. Now, they haven't really... Because the Americans are the ones that conquered by it. It's General Patton. He was just a nice guy, and he said, let the Gaul in first. <laughs> but everybody understands what, what's happening over there. Um, the point I'm making is that by the time you get to 1945 and the end of the Second World War, the right in, Paris, in France has been delegitimated. Okay? Because they had a bad record of cooperating with Hitler. Uh, they had a bad record of, of identifying, if they're ever going to identify with any conqueror, it shouldn't be the Nazis who had just killed six million Jews and millions of others, who were the personification of evil, and yet it didn't stop the French from co cooperating with them. And so, um, if you're an arch-Catholic conservative, all the rest of it, 
by the time the Second World War is over, you didn't have a great position in politics. On the other hand, the resistance, the resistance, those who had fought against Hitler, whether in the Free French Army or, as you know, the resistance fighters within France itself, not there were that many, but there were some, uh, they are the heroes now because they have saved the honor of the nation. So now if you ask a Frenchman, so what did you do in the war? A few guys were with Hitler, but Ruba de Ruba was with the Allies, you know, which is a lie. But, you know, and look at the Gaulle, and these are the, that's the real France, and we were in the good situation in the first place. This puts Charles de Gaulle in a funny position because um, he's a man of the right. He was a Catholic, he was a soldier, um, he identified with many positions of the right, but he was against the Germans. And so France, this, this illustrates what I'm talking about, the funny situation in French politics when the Second World War is over, he says they don't want to become communists necessarily, or the communists will be the single biggest party in the French parliament. You know that? Single biggest party in the French parliament. The, um, uh, but on the other hand, he, he doesn't want to be identified with right-wing causes of the type that would make him look like a fascist. You see? And so he tries to craft a position in the middle, and he's not successful, and so de Gaulle falls from power very quickly after the uh, liberation. Like, uh, by 19, late 1945, he's gone, and he'll be gone for 12, 13 years. So the story we're taking place, I'm going to speak, speak about tonight, De Gaulle is out of the picture, he's in sullen retirement, okay, waiting to be called back by the nation one day. Uh, instead, what happens is the French set up the Fourth Republic. Okay? Now they had the Third, they had the Second, the First, they have the Fourth Republic. Fourth Republic, of course, the Third Republic crashed, so the Fourth, fourth Republic, now that the war's over, and we want to go back to business as usual, of course, they changed the laws a little bit. They shouldn't have any fascists in the par- parliament and things like that that they had in the Third Republic. But basically, they want to pick up where they left off. Okay? Except that it's post-war, and they're aware of the new realities with the Russians and all the rest of it. But it's still the same France. They just can't get their act together. Uh, the French are very angry about, at the British for what the British did in the Middle East. During the Second World War, General Edward Spears, who was supposed to be the British liaison with uh, de Gaulle, really went to Syria and Lebanon, which is supposed to be French territory, and finagled it its way out that they should break away from France and declare independence without getting rechutes from France. And the French say, oh, see that? The British didn't do it to the countries that they control. They did it on the countries that we control. Perfidious Albion, as they call it. The British always stick you in the back, and uh, they're supposed to be our allies, and they tore away our, our, uh, our colonies, as it were. You see? So they're very angry. As a result... In the years 45, 46, 47, 48, enormous resentment in France against the British, even though they're allied with the British. Consequently, France helps the Zionists, the Haganah, the Irgun, the Stern Gang, the Lechi. Okay? I want you to be clear about this. The reason is the climate of opinion is one in which, what can we do? The Irgun, that's a great idea, they blow up the British officers. That's Givaldic. Right? You understand? So, uh, wait a minute. The Minister of the Interior, very powerful post in France. That's the Home Secretary, the Minister of the Interior. The, that's, that's not like America where you run the parks. Minister of the Interior, you control the police, you control the ports and all this kind of stuff. A Jew, Jules Mach. Later, a, 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 Jews, some hold very high positions, including Prime Minister in the Fourth Republic. Okay? What are you going to say after 1945? You don't want a Jew to have a position, but what are you, a, 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 a fascist? Are you for the Vichy? You understand? You can't do that. Uh, Anti-Semitism delegitimated in the Fourth Republic. Properly so. I hope we all agree on that. But uh, Jules Mach, uh, by the way, his father was a famous French general, Jewish. 
his grandfather was a famous general in the 1800s. You had some Jewish guys who did not convert, but they were stark, 150% French, very assimilated. This is, this is the, um, the French Ashkenazic elite that I'm speaking about, in which they don't keep anything and they're not associated with Judaism. But it turns out that I'm not right. It turns out they have a Jewish heart here and there if you know where to press the right buttons, at least to help the Haganah or the Lechi or the Irgun. Okay? And so listen, the Bricha, where are, they, where are those ships, illegal ships, sailing from? Two places, uh, France, Italy. Both of those countries obviously don't like England because the British keep saying, what are you doing this? It's illegal. You're trying to break the British blockade. You're hurting us. You're causing us all kind of trouble. And the French and Italians said, no, you're kidding. We know nothing about it. Right? French are very good at that sort of thing. Except in this case, it was good for the Jews. You see? Um, there's also much public sympathy in France for the Zionist cause. Remember, the years I'm talking about, the years of the struggle to make Israel, of the UN partition resolution, of all that stuff in the Arab opposition, and in France, especially with the background, the Holocaust is over, and the French knew a lot of Jews in France, and the were been killed, they felt guilty conscience. Um, all across the French, what shall I say, all across the French uh, political spectrum, very strong um, sympathy for the Zionism, for the cause of sending of Israel. Very different than France today, unfortunately. The communists in 1947 have a, a general strike, but they interrupt the strike to transport the Bricha refugees. You understand? In other there was a whole caravan of people going to leave from Marseille, somewhere illegal, and they want to send them to a uh, thing. Andre Blumel uh, was the uh, Jewish, uh, the top lawyer in France, the chief of staff of Leon Blum when he was the prime minister. Uh, the, I'm telling you, Jews have very important positions over there, and uh, he is able to be the lawyer for all the Zionist causes, and if anybody ever gets in jail, he gets them out, and he can go to the Communist Party and say, I know you're having a strike and all the rest of Stalin and so forth. Listen, we're trying to get some Jews into Palestine to help us out. And the leaders of the Communist Party say, oh, that's different, okay, we'll let you go. It's, it's interesting. You know what that means? They tell the striking truck drivers, you know, this is an exception, drive these people there, then you go back and have the strike. So it's a, it tells you something about the climate of opinion, the remarkable climate of opinion, because let's face it, France has never been a particularly pro-Semitic country. That's an understatement, even today. But it's kind of funny. At this particular period in history, I don't know if pro-Semitic is the right word, but everybody's in favor of setting up a country to send the Jews there. <laughs> you know, that you're in favor of. Plus, plus it hurts the British. That's the best part. It's Gavaldic. Um, the most extraordinary uh, piece of this it comes in 1947 when they have the UN vote. And um, as you'll see in a minute, the French foreign ministry, which I'll talk about shortly, very opposed to this. There still is a strong conservative pro-Arab kind of bias, uh, long-standing in the French foreign service. And, uh, they, and they are very anti-Semitic, and they are told today. And that's the way it goes. And they say, listen, France has all those colonies in Africa. I'll give you an example. Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, they'll riot and cause trouble if we vote for partition of Palestine, take away the Holy Land, and, and all the rest of it. In spite of that, France ends up voting, it's quite remarkable, France ends up voting for partition, which, which really shocked everybody. The French ambassador to the United was Alexander Paradis. He didn't want to do it, but uh, Bernard Baruch um, goes to him. It's a remarkable story. And Bernard Baruch is a big macher in the United States, of course. And I'll tell you even more than this. Bernard Baruch was a very interesting guy, super assimilated Jew. But I tell you, watch out when you say somebody's assimilated, you don't know. You'll be shocked to hear that behind the scenes, a guy like Bernard Baruch, 
who was intermarried and uh, you know never went to shul or things like this, is bankrolling the irgun. Is that okay? He says you can consider me a, a someone sitting in the tall grass with a long rifle. I'm, I'm really I'm really behind you. It's one of the ways they were able to pay for those newspaper ads that you see over there, right? And Bruno Baruch doesn't want to come out publicly for it because he doesn't want to hurt his own thing. And second of all, as influence peddlers know, it's always better to be behind the scenes. Correct? I'll ask you the question. Who is the number one lobbyist in Washington? See? <laughs> See? If you know the answer, then there's something wrong. <laughs> okay? The, only the people who need to know, know. So Bernard Baruch goes to Alexander Paradine and says, I guess, he says, I'll tell you right now. He says, if you don't vote for France, if you don't vote for a partition, I can't whatever. He says, I'm going to go to Truman. We're going to cut the money off of you. If you think I'm bluffing, try me. You see? If you say this, I'll deny it. But if you do it, try me. And that's when the time in 1947-48 when they're putting together the Marshall Plan and France looks to talk about three, four billion dollars at a time when a billion was money. Okay? Uh, well, not like today, you know. And, uh, and they're like scared. Now, there's a, that's half the story. There's another half that I'll, that I'll uh, address uh, presently. As a matter of fact, I'll address it right now. The Fourth Republic, like the Third Republic, and like France then and France today, is, uh, is a combination of politics, salons, political salons, and mistresses. That's the way it goes in France. Just get over it, okay? I know you're shocked to hear that. Right? You never knew that before, and so on and so forth. Um, but throughout the history of France, uh, you don't go to the politics, you, you find out who the girlfriend is. That's how good. The Americans did in Benjamin Franklin's time when they tried to get help from the monarchy of Louis XVI to help the American Revolution. As they get this, my friends. You understand? So you can either go, ooh, ah, ah, or you can say, tell me what I need to do. Um, all I can tell you is that in 1947, 1948, the Zionists very successfully lobbied the boudoir. <laughs> okay? This is, this is how it went in France. And they got to the girlfriend or the mistress, or the dear friend, or whatever you want to call it, of the prime minister, and the foreign minister, and this one, and that one, and the other, which drove the diplomats crazy, because on the one hand, the foreign minister says, oh, I'm definitely going to vote against Israel, but when it comes to the cabinet meeting, they vote for it, and what happened? Something happened in the middle. I shall say no more in an Orthodox synagogue. <laughs> right? But uh, George Bidot, who's, who's the leading, uh, he's, he was de Gaulle's number two, he was the leading foreign minister, in the late 40s, he was the guy who was always the foreign minister very often, uh, and so forth. He does a UA 180. He promised the diplomats and the French foreign minister, oh, don't worry, I got this, we're not going to vote for Israel, all the rest of it. And something happened. <laughs> you understand? And Leon Blum, to his credit, I'll say, um, the Jewish side came out very heavily after the Second World War. Leon Blum had been the prime minister of France in the 30s. Hitler had very strongly and very capably used the fact that Leon Blum was the prime minister of France to promote a powerful anti-Semitism in uh, France, uh, the country is run by Jews. The slogan that the German propaganda under Goebbels used in 1940, which broke the morale of the French army, was better Hitler than Blum. Right? There was a powerful statement over there. And in spite of what I just said, the socialist masses were in favor of Leon Blum. He was their hero. He got them a lot of uh, what we would call today uh, economic and civil rights and things like that, made France a little bit fairer and so forth. And even though Leon Blum was usually very much an assimilated Jew, he was arrested by Hitler and kept in Theresienstadt in one of these places. And when the war's over, he tells the Zionists, tell me what I need to do. You know? Because I'm going to help. This is a, I don't care about this assimilation junk anymore. I mean, I, I've had that up to here. Tell me what I need to do to make Israel happen. And he does. And so he lobbies him, and they lobby the girlfriends, and the this, and that, and the other. And by the time it's over, 
France, uh, as we would say, does the right thing. Now, Georges Bedot becomes quite amazing. They really got to him because he gives $26 million worth of weapons for the Haganah in January 1948. That's the time when Israel was desperate, fighting the Battle of the Roads to, you know, the, the, to, to get to Jerusalem and all the rest. I mean, money, that's when they send Golda Meir to try to make money in America. France, France, I say, give him $26 million. That's amazing. And, and France was poor at that time. Uh, I'm not even finished. In May, Georges Bedot gives Machen Begin, gives the Irgun to Altolina. That's where that whole boat was. Right? Here's the, the picture of a Ben-Gurion blowing up the ship in Tel Aviv Harbor. This is where the Haganah killed the Irgun. So it's a very sad episode as far as one dude killing another, but where the heck did the Irgun get a ship with 800 soldiers and I forget how many machine guns and zillions of rounds of ammunition and mortars and little cannons and I don't know what they had. They had amazing stuff on that boat. Who gave them that? They couldn't even afford to buy it. The French gave it to them. Because the French figured like this, maybe the Haganah will take over, maybe the Irgun will take over. If the Irgun takes over, we want them to owe us something. You see? And it's very sad, by the way, because if they hadn't... fought each other, destroyed all the weapons, and so forth. If, they had, if Ben-Gurion and Begin somehow were able to work it out, then uh, probably they would have had Gushalayim. I mean, that's, that's the way it goes. You know, they would have won, won the battle. But it, it's remarkable that a country like France would be doing it. Oh, we could stick it to the British. They're getting kicked out of their pants in Palestine. They're leaving. They're getting Ashenblot all over them. They get, they, they look, oh, this is great. You see? Now, um, the, the Irgun, by the way, had a very successful ambassador, you might say, representative, Shmuel Ariel, um, who is friends with this Jewish lady, a Romanian Jewish lady, who knows French very well. They set up a salon, you know, in a high-class hotel, and the French politicians are there every uh, two days, and uh, she and she's stressing the fact that, you know, France, uh, she's interested in people who are in the resistance and the resistance, and were anti-fascist and all the rest, and obviously anybody anti-fascist wants to help the Irgun, and they... they, they we're able to get a lot done for the Jewish cause over there. The right is not dead, though. The spirit of the right in France is, is incarnated in what they call the Quai d'Orsay, which is a street in which the foreign ministry is located. Right? Here's the Quai d'Orsay, which even today they use the Orsay Street. Right? Quay. And, um, and even today, I mean, that's the, that's the expression. Whenever you see in the, I'll just tell you, if you ever see in the newspapers, the, the Quai d'Orsay said this. They mean the French foreign ministry... Uh, so like in England, like in America, we say Foggy Bottom, you know. And, um, and this guy was the director general for many years, a real Fabrice and Antisemite. He was there for 20-some years, and uh, under De Gaulle and all the rest of it, cool, what a hilarious. And, uh, he, and he, he is the exact, well, I want to tell you something. It's a certain way of, maybe I'm wrong. When I say I'm wrong, I'm talking like a Jew. He's talking like a Frenchman. What are the cold, calculating benefits for France for backing the Jews versus the Arabs. Does France gain more by kissing up to the Arabs and bringing them there? Does France gain more by being friends with Russia or Italy? You know, they play these chess games like in the 18th century. You understand? Who's best for us now and tomorrow we can stab you in the back? The old line of the British guy, no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, just permanent interests. And, you know, and France, like Italy, has this 
tradition of sacred, sacred egoism. You understand? Uh, because when it comes to France, we're, uh, obviously, it's, uh, we're number one. I mean, it's, it's Antiochus Epiphanes. You know, it's, it's obvious that we are the gods of the world. And, you know, just, just look at us, you see? And the whole world comes to Paris. And therefore, whatever is French selfish national policy, that should be the policy of, of the government or the rest of it. And yet, there's the left that says it's guys like you that brought the Munich Pact, that brought in Hitler, that failed the country in the time of the crisis, and so forth. So, what's going to happen to Israel is going to depend who's stronger. The spirit of the left, the spirit of the resistance and the fighting against Hitler, was dominant in uh, the Fourth Republic. Okay? And forget Couve de Morville. These are the guys that counted more. We'll see more. Remember this guy we just saw before, General Koenig? Who was the commander in, the, in North Africa against Rommel? Here he is with Ike, with Eisenhower, showing him around in France. Uh, Maurice Bourges-Monnerie, I know it's not a, a, a household word or anything like this. Also a hero of the resistance. He'll be the prime minister. He'll be the defense minister. He'll be uh, all kind of high positions in the French government. And uh, again, a person who suffered under the Germans, who fought very courageously against them. He has a different view of the world than the Kaiser Sai. Okay, you understand? They see France as a shiny beacon, but in a different way. Not in this cold, selfish, calculating way, you know, as they see of the old school, but of something different. Um, the Kaiser Sai is anti-Israel. The resistance is not. It's sympathetic. The resistance sees Israel as the Holocaust survivors, which is true, right? And they see the Arabs trying to destroy Israel. It's like the Nazis again. You understand? So it's a big difference split over here. Now, the Fourth Republic went through lots of governments all the time. Uh, it's like the Third Republic, chronically unstable due to proportional representation and the resulting numerous parties. France has, you know, a dozen, two dozen parties. They fall apart and they come together again all the time. Will Rogers very famously said in the 1930s, it's a famous joke, I went in the morning to London to see the changing of the guard. And then in the afternoon, I took the train to Paris to see the changing of the government. You understand? <laughs> Because you look at these guys, just Google them. And says this guy was a, was the defense minister from August to September of '52, and the other guy was was, was, was it, no, no French government lasted very long. I mean, a year is long by there. Two years is forever, right? And 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 rarely. And that this this basic instability um, is extremely characteristic of the French government. It didn't change to De Gaulle. That's why De Gaulle came in later on with what they call the Fifth Republic. He said enough of this nonsense. But for this Fourth Republic, is, is musical chairs, okay? But having said musical chairs, a lot of the same actors, they just have different roles. You understand? Today's playing Hamlet, tomorrow's playing Henry V, tomorrow's, you know, it's the same thing. This guy's a prime minister, and next time he's an interior minister, and next time he's this minister, and next time, you get what I'm saying? They, 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 there's not really that much difference of a changing over there, which means a lot of the work is done by the civil servants, of which France has this very harder, haughty uh, tradition of... Uh, what shall I say, very arrogant people, civil servants who got the A-pluses and the exams and all the rest of it. But the politicians are the politicians. Now, um, what about France and the new state of Israel? Not Pushit. Uh On the one hand, when Israel becomes a state in 1948-49, the French fall in love with Yigal alone, and they invite him to uh, France, and they give him the red carpet. He sees the whole French army things from top to bottom, from, from the bottom of Africa to the top, and the ski troops and all the rest of it, because they say... Look at the Haganah did in 1948. Uh, the Israeli army is the most dynamic military force in the Middle East, and the Jews are really something, and so forth and so on. Of course, the minute the trip was over, Ben-Gurion fired him, but that's a different story. Um, and yet, on the other hand, France of the right. 
The reason that Israel can't pass a law against missionaries is because of France. The reason that Israel has to step on its tiptoes uh, whenever it comes to any kind of Christian site or Catholic because of France. The French ambassador to Israel, very anti-Semitic, I repeat, anti-Semitic, and the French put them there on purpose. Um, they're always causing trouble. What are they doing to the Arabs? What are they doing to the Christian sites? What are the rest of it? Yaakov Herzog was, uh, Brother Kaim Herzog, he was the Israeli official in charge of dealing with all the religious matters. And so he's dealing with the French all the time, but they're complaining about, what are you doing to this place that used to be a church? Now, to be perfectly honest, in the 48-49 war, some places were blown up and desecrated. That's what happened in the war. To, on the other hand, Israel, bending over backwards, because they didn't want any antagonism with France, spent a lot of money repairing everything and putting everything back together again. There are a lot of Catholic shrines and, and uh, monks and nuns and, and monasteries and things like that in the state of Israel proper, you know, within the Green Line. And uh, France always sees itself, they just claimed this since the 1500s, as the protector of the Catholics in the Middle East you know, from time immemorial. Uh, who said? But that was they say. And Israel in the 1950s and 40s is not going to mess with this. You see? So you have to tread carefully whenever you're dealing with France, and it can cause you a lot of trouble. Um, but that's the France of the right. Now, Israel says like this, on the other hand. There are five great powers out there. America, Russia, China, England, France. France is the least of the great powers, but it's nevertheless a great power. Okay? Um, France has, in the wake of the Second World War, an armaments industry they're trying to build up from the destruction of the Second World War. An armaments industry means you need foreign customers to buy the stuff. True? They're bringing foreign money. The Boeing of France, you know, whatever you call that, the, 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 the people that make the, 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 the companies make the jet fighters and all the fancy things of this nature, the makers of the planes, including military planes, Dassault. Serge Dassault, Jewish. No, his grandfather was Jewish, meaning they're a Jewish family that converted to Catholic. But, you know, and I know, in the 1940s, that didn't matter. They were Jewish. Hitler tried to kill them. And so when the Second World War is over, they are French and they are Catholics, but the Jewish side wants to get us revived. And they say like this, they say, you know, we should help Israel. Okay? So, it's a, it's a favorable climate if you know how to use it. France is the first country to sell Israel to jet planes in 1950, the very beginning of them. But then the Kaidor side clamps down and said, no more arms sales to Israel. In Israel, it's the Ben-Gurion era, which of course means a, uh, a frantic attempt. I mean, this, this is an iconic picture of Ben-Gurion. This is what he spent most of his time doing trying to build up the Israeli army, because he says, listen, we're surrounded by the Arabs, they're a bunch of chais, they want to kill us, we've we got, we got to build up the army. So Ben-Gurion is, is a, the, not only the prime minister, but a defense minister who's constantly throwing himself into every effort possible, ceaseless efforts to build up the Israeli military. That means there's a frantic effort in these years to um, acquire arms. Okay. Uh, now, the United States, under Truman and Eisenhower, they keep saying, don't build up arms, it'll lead to an arms race. I talked about that last week or two weeks ago, right? They said, leave it like it is now. The Arabs don't have the fancy, you don't have the fancy tanks, the Arabs don't have fancy That's better for you. That's not how Ben-Gurion sees it. Truman and, um, and, and the uh, British and the French governments in 1950 set up what they call the Tripartite Declaration, which was the product of the three, three foreign ministers, okay, Axis and Bevan and Schumann, Robert Schumann, after Bidot was always, in every government, he was always the foreign minister, Robert Schumann. And uh, they said like this, we're not going to sell to anybody. The Arabs shouldn't get new weapons, and Israel shouldn't get new weapons. That was the official policy of these guys. Ben-Gurion's very frustrated. And by the time you get to the year, we're talking about 1952, 53, 
Um, he doesn't know what to do. One of the, but one of the things he does do is he appoints a young guy named Shimon Peres to be the new director general of the foreign ministry. There, as we can barely see it over here, he's, Paris was, you'll be shocked to hear, he wasn't always an old man. And, uh, <laughs> and I can tell you that the years I'm talking about, the years 52 to 56, are the golden age of Shimon Paris. I mean that. This is when he did amazing things, because he's a very talented guy. He never went to college, but very brilliant in, uh, in, in native towns. Uh, come from a very famous uh, family, Chaim Belazhina, and, uh, you know, he must have it in the genes or whatever, you know, from the Litvaks. And the bottom line is, when he takes, he was 29 to 30 years old when he became the uh, director general of the, of the defense ministry. So Ben-Gurion is the head guy officially, but he leaves everything in the hands of Paris. Um, and that means that um, Paris concentrates on where to get weapons. Now, at the very beginning of Israel, they were frantically, you couldn't get any weapons except on, on, on sleazy places. You understand? If you went to South America, General Somoza, who was a real hilarious, but on the other hand, look, Roosevelt's with him. <laughs> Right? He's the famous one that Roosevelt said, true, he's an SOB, but he's our SOB. That's what he said. This is what he did. Look at that. Right? And then Batista, and, and before Castro in Cuba, these are the guys that, that sell uh, illegal weapons. I mean, you know, that, that's what they do. They sell all their illegal things also. And so Shimon Paris goes all over South America. Isaiah Dafmenton, you know, if you want to get together rifles and mortars, I don't know what, what they did over there. But nothing really impressive. You know, you're not going to, you're going to get junk from these guys, but that's where Israel was holding in those days. But Paris was imaginative and indefatigable. You can't take it away from him. You know, he was, had tremendous energy and he was very smart and he always pushed and pushed and looked, looked for, for an opening and if you do like that, he, done, he runs them. In those years, the army finally worked itself out. Moshe Dayan became the chief of staff and Moshe Dayan says, I'm concentrating on the actual military side, and Shimon Paris, you, you concentrate on getting the weapons and running the civilian side. You understand? It's a, that's a good um, division of labor, because before that, the army guys wanted to stick their nose in this, and the civilian guys wanted to stick their nose in this, and everybody knows anything about a business or a government operation knows, if you don't have the right organizational chart, it's not going to work out. So in these years, this became the 50s, the iconic pair, you know, Diane and Paris. Diane is running the army, and Paris is running the defense ministry, as it were. And... Um, uh, it, it was like Paris, Ben-Gurion's dream team. All right? Now, in 1953, as I explained to you earlier, the Arab-Israeli conflict heats up with all those border raids. Remember, you had Kibia and all that. That's when the, 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 it just was the way it goes. 53, 54, 55, 56, it's the Arabs kill somebody here, the Israelis blow up this, the Arabs do this, the Israelis do that. That is the situation that was in the Middle East all the time. Now, Israel is therefore looking and says, we want to get weapons, but where are you going to get weapons from? If you go to England, the British say like this, if we sell Israel weapons, they'll use it to conquer the West Bank, which is true. Why do we want to uh, hurt King Hussein? He's our guy. It's not incorrect. If Israel got a bunch of tanks in 1953-54, Diane will use them to conquer the West Bank. So that's not what England wants. Um, go to America. The United States said under dollars, no weapons. Nobody should get weapons. That's the best thing for Israel. Nobody should get any weapons. Go to Russia. Right? The Soviet Union in 1953-54 is not in the game yet, as I explained last week. You understand? They're just starting to get their feet wet. They're not selling people weapons and things like this. What about France? Right? I mean, America? Russia? England? Yeah. What about France? Um, French government reluctant, thanks to the Quai d'Orsay, thanks to the foreign policy and the foreign, foreign uh, diplomats. We don't want to get involved in a, in, in a situation which will tick off the airs. But guess what? Whether they like it or not, a huge revolt has begun 
in Algeria, whether the French like it or not, and Nasser is a big supporter of the re- revolutionaries, the people who are uh, blowing up the French, which enrages the French. Because I'll show you a little bit later in a, a little bit of a video, the famous movie, the guy made the Battle of Algiers, maybe you're familiar with it, and uh, they did everything that the PLO does in Israel, except that Israel is better than the French at it. They put bomb in the disco, they uh, shoot people in the street, blow up the cars, you know, whatever they can do, cut people's throats, whatever, whatever they can do, and the French don't know how to react to this, and so they take a lot of heavy losses, although they will send in the army, and the French will commit atrocities, and it goes back and forth. It was a messy business, this Algerian war um, in the 1950s, but uh, it enrages the French, okay? And if it enrages the French, uh, who's backing this, the Egyptians and the other Arabs, if that's happening, well, 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 uh, maybe we should look at Israel, you see? France in the 1950s under the Fourth Republic had two gigantic headaches, Indochina and Algeria. The French Empire included, as you saw on the map I showed you before, um, a lot of Africa, including Algeria, and they also included what we call Vietnam, Indochina, you know, um, Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. And um, at the time I'm talking about, uh, the Vietnamese, the Viet Minh as they called it, had a huge operation fighting against the French, which they eventually beat the French. Um, and Indochina is very far away. It's the other side of the world. And it's really not winnable, though the French cannot bring themselves to admit it. Have you heard of the Battle of Yen Ben Phu? Some people, where the French army was destroyed by the Vietnamese, uh, which is like remarkable. Now, now we know really Chinese soldiers were there. We, we found that out, but they didn't know it at the time. And so they wipe out a French army. And this was like a huge blow to France. And, and where is it going? Even if I say America, the Vietnam complex, you know what I'm talking about. So finally, uh, in the Fourth Republic, Pierre Mendes France, a Jew, becomes the Prime Minister, and he comes Prime Minister, he's going to seize the bull by the horns, we're getting out of Indochina, just whatever it takes. And he does, like Nixon, you know, we're just, we're just out of there, you see? And they sign a treaty and they, they leave. Notice they got beaten, get it over with, we've got to move on. And this was his old, once he, once he did that, then he fell from power. But Algeria is a bigger headache, because Algeria is ne- near France, just across the Mediterranean, Algeria has a couple of million Frenchmen living there, what they call the Pied Noir, the Black Fate. You know, the, the France had pushed colonists, millions of colonists, in there, um, living among the Muslims, um, whatever. And, uh, and they're the ones who are being uh, killed by the Muslims. They're killing the Muslims, the French army protecting them. It's, 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 it's a gigantic mess. Here, take a look at this. Um, uh, as, as I'm speaking over here, these are scenes from the famous movie, uh, just a tiny bit in which they show you how the Muslims are uh, uh, demonstrating in the streets, and then the French settlers will demonstrate in the street, and the army and the police are trying to cope with this, and the French weren't used to this, you understand? They were young at the counter-terrorism business, and they didn't know what's going on over there, and imagine with this stuff going on, they're, they're, they have the new Muslim flags over there, and then you see the army guys trying to hold order, and they're going, running riot in the streets of Algiers, which is a big, beautiful French-type city, and they're shooting at civilians, as you can see over here, and uh, it, it just got worse and worse and worse. But on the other hand, it's too close to France. France regarded in law Algeria not as a province, but as a depart- department, uh, as, as a piece of France proper. You understand? That's how they viewed it. And um, the result was that all throughout the 50s, there was no way that France wanted to let go of this, even though they were suffering all the time. Look at this. This is very typical. It's happened in Israel. So they said, tell them to see the captain. And they take a couple of guys in, and they'll shoot the guy when he's not looking, you know? Meaning they weren't up on this yet. 
They learned everything the hard way. Okay, I didn't want to give you the, the sound, but you you can figure it out yourself. You understand? And he's going to shoot this guy when the guy's not looking. He hears the thing, right? I mean, these sorts of things happen all. There's a movie, you know. There's a French movie, by the way. These sorts of things happen happen all all over the place. Um, They would like to do this to Israel. Um, There are many parallels. They would argue it's an anti-colonial war. This is the left argument against Israel. They see the West Bank as another Algeria. All the rest of it. Israel has learned because they had to learn a lot smarter than the French. So they don't let themselves get involved in these situations, but it ain't Pushit, right, as you can see. So you want to understand the Fourth Republic? You want to understand the years 50 to 56? You have to understand this, right, and, and all kinds of things going on, because it's a major issue in the French politics, and it's not going away. The toxic situation makes the French hate the Arabs and sympathize with Israel. But the Kaidar Sai, the foreign ministry, wants to maintain the arms embargo against Israel anyway. A- a- anyway. But not everyone feels that way. Some see Israel as a dynamic possible French ally. And Pierre Gilbert was deputy foreign minister. He, he's a weirdo. He's a super total French diplomat. And he fell in love with Israel. You know, they, they can't understand it. He was a, a, a very high level French diplomat. Eventually he goes as ambassador to Israel. He learns Ivrit. He The Israelis love him more than anybody else. He's very pro-Israel, all the rest of it. And it means that you have a very big, important French macher, a genuine diplomat, who's pushing the idea, why are we letting this country on the other side of the Mediterranean, which is really a potential great ally for France, you know, let go? I mean, we could work together with them very successfully. The Israelis have a lot of expertise in fighting the Arabs. They have a very good intelligence network. There's a large Jewish community in Algiers, which we could use to spy on the Arabs. You know, all kinds of things like that. And um, you start to see something of a realignment. But how do you break the stranglehold of the Kai d'Orsay on French foreign policy? The answer, my friends, is, as Shimon Peres demonstrates, legwork. You understand? If you're willing to, to work real hard and go politician after politician, and so as I say before, this is the golden age of Shimon Paris, he becomes remarkable as a superman. He goes to France every week. He flies from Israel to France every single week of the year. Um, you talk to this guy, you talk to that one, you talk to this lady, you talk to that one, and you know how it goes. People in the Kira business can tell you. You talk to a hundred people, one convert you'll make, one friend you'll find. Is this a question do you have? Does this slice, you know? Do you have the patience to go after one politician after another after another? And even though you get turned down, you turn down until you find somebody who doesn't turn you down. And then you put him, and then you put that in your book, and then a few weeks later you find another one, now you got two. And then a few weeks later you got, you got three. That is how it goes if you're willing to be. It's sort of like Chaim Weitzman, the way he got the, um, the uh, Belfort Declaration. It's, it's hard work. You've got to be willing to do it. And Paris is, he, he even goes on, on, on the hustings. He meets this guy and this guy and this guy and all the rest of it. Sooner or later, you know, you go to, sooner or later you get invited to a party. And one party, you get invited to another party. The other party, you meet this guy, uh, Bourges Manery. And then eventually you end up meeting this guy. And eventually you meet this guy. And then you go and have a lunch with them. And another time you have a dinner with them. And you establish a relationship. And it's long and hard work, but he was young, he was healthy, and he was willing, willing to do it. And he achieves an astonishing success. The French, of all people, these uh, <laughs> Imam Zareb, they took him to, to they took they took Paris to the heart. They took the Israel to the heart. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, here's here's Paris on French TV. Ça 
Uh, you get the idea. Uh, you learn French, that's all. The, uh, and, and, and he becomes a, a, a hush of a guy in, in, in the French media. Now, um, I'll tell you, it's quite a minute. He, he's t- achieved an astonishing success. And uh, the French elites, uh, by the notion, Israel's another Czechoslovakia. Okay? And in France, in the Fourth Republic, oy, this is Deladier, the French, the French, the French uh, prime minister. So he was part of the sellout of Czechoslovakia, which everybody knows was disgraceful, and, let, and it didn't help. It led to, 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 to World War II anyway, and everything is associated. I mean, there's Chamberlain, there's Deladier. Uh, the French say like this, this time we're not going to let Israel down the, the tubes. See, Paris is able to sell them on that muscle, that model. We're another Czechoslovakia. We are a democratic country. Uh, we're fighting for our lives against satanic, fascistic forces, whatever they want to say. And you know how vicious they are, because look what they're doing. They're cutting out little babies uh, in, in, in Algeria. You know the highest that the Arabs are. And we're fighting. We're willing to fight, and we're, and we're not a Czechoslovakia, by the way. We're not going to give up. The Czechs surrendered. We're not going to give up. And uh, Moshe Dayan is the poster boy for the fact that this is a fighting Czechoslovakia. This is a different. Here the democracies will win because they have the spirit they're not going to let it go. The French are so impressed, they give Moshe Dayan the, the Legion of Honor. Look at this. Right? You know, the whole nine yards, you know. If you get kissed by a French general, that's it. You know? <laughs> okay? And, and oh, they love the eye patch. And he's on all the magazines. I'm telling you, you know, they go Diane crazy over there. And, and, and uh, no, 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 but it's all part of a, it's a one-two punch. You've got Paris on the one side, you've got Moshe Day on the other side, you have Israel. It's a socialist democracy, and it's even better. It's run by the labor unions, it's even better. You understand? Who's on the other side? Reactionaries, Arabs, fascists, this and that, all the evil. So it's, it's black against white. And, and it's the, you know, the, uh, the, the good guys and the bad guys. And this is the good old 50s when we were the good guys. Right? We were the good guys. Uh, the French elites are anti-communist, and so is Israel. So Israel goes there all the time, and he establishes a relationship with the French secret services, which is still there today, the SDCE. Believe it or not, they don't talk about it in public, and a lot of times you see France vote this way or that way in the United Nations and all the rest of it, all of which is true, and the heck with France. But at the same time, if you know what goes on behind the scenes, the Mossad and the SDCE, I think it's called, uh, still are very tight, and they have been since the 50s. You know, so you have to watch out what you read in the paper. There's the uh, stuff up front, and there's stuff that goes on behind the scenes. So it's very interesting in that regard. To them, Nasser is he- equals Hitler, which, which of course helps the French whenever they contemplate Algeria, because the French don't want to look at like we're colonialists trying to crush a third world people from getting their national liberation, but rather we are many of us victims, as the French say, of Hitler himself. People, we have officers in the French army who are in Dachau. 
and they talk like this. And we're fighting against forces of Nazism and fascism. They're just using the language of Arab nationalism, but we don't know what's really going on. So in other words, we're the good guys. The French elites, the best of them, have guilt trips over Vichy and the shameful French collaboration during the war. They're ashamed of the French handing over the French Jews to Hitler. Um, I want you to understand that what the French did um, was really remarkable. First of all, they gave Hitler the Jews living in France who were not French citizens. So it's a hobbit, sorry. That they could sort of explain away. But then they also gave to Hitler every, every Jew they can find, even if he's a born French citizen from 10 Duras, right? Now that's, in the French civic culture, that's like a big sin. These guys were French citizens, entitled to all the protection of that, and they were given over to a foreign country to be exterminated. It's, it's a big shame um, if you're not a member of the extreme right, right? And... Um, how do you deal with that guilt? Well, you help Israel. <laughs> you get it? Help Israel is a way of assuaging the guilt. Here's Ben-Gurion with uh, Christian Pino, the French foreign minister. And Christian Pino says to Ben-Gurion, says, you know, we feel bad about uh, the Holocaust, all the rest. And Ben-Gurion says, tanks. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He says, no, he says, I'm talking about the moral guilt. We need planes. I ain't got the, the. Ben-Gurion says, I'm not interested in moral guilt. Tachos. No, he says like this. You, 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 no, he says, no, he says like this. You want to do something with the Holocaust? Don't give me one of these museums. And don't talk about those statues. And no, thank you. We need tanks. We need recallless rifles. We need four-wheel drive uh, jeeps. This is what he says, you know. We need all this kind of stuff. This is, this is ta- tachlis. This is the way it goes. And Pino says, oh, I get you totally. You know what I'm saying? It was, it, it, it was interesting. But, I mean, it's a good argument. Don't you agree? What's, what's more important is to prevent another Auschwitz? You make a movie? Or help Israel? Right? I mean, you understand. And so, uh, little by little... Over the years, 1954, 55, 56, Shimon Peres builds a cadre of pro-French, excuse me, pro-Israeli French politicians, including politicians who will have leading cabinet positions. In other words, he does an end run around the foreign ministry, around the Quai d'Orsay. Okay? The guys who will emerge as big machers in the French Republic, Jacques Soustel is the governor general of Algeria, which is a higher position. Later on, he's the foreign minister and this minister and that minister. I remember he was a minister for atomic bomb under de Gaulle. Okay? And he even wrote a book, The Long March of Israel, the heroic story of the rise of Israel, something like that, you know? Uh, Guy Mollet will be the uh, prime minister of France during the Sunday campaign. And he will be the one who says to Ben-Gurion, we'll give you an A-bomb. Right? I'll talk about that next week. Uh, Bourges Manoury will be the defense minister at the time of the Sinai campaign. Bourges-Manoury is the defense minister for two years, which is quite remarkable by French standards, and he is the best friend of Israel, or one of the best friends of Israel. You know, if Paris needs something, Bourges-Manoury says, we will get it to you. If the foreign ministry says we can't do it, we'll sneak it out to you. They will, they will uh, smuggle um, from their own government. You understand what I'm saying? And, and they do things like this, because he says, Israel, like I said before, we don't want another Auschwitz, and we don't want this, and then the other, and anyway, Paris is our friend, and Israel is our friend. This is all done through highly unorthodox diplomacy, which upsets the Israeli foreign ministry. Uh, Moshe Sharet and Golda Meir, who becomes the foreign minister after Moshe Sharet, they can't stand this. They're very proper. They say, foreign relations are run through the foreign ministry. It's supposed to be the event. And Paris is saying like this, I can't go through the regular way. If you go through the front door, it's not going to work. Officially, France doesn't believe in any of this. But unofficially, we can do anything. And, you know, Golda Meir never forgave him for this. And it's one of the reasons why, when she was a prime minister, she wouldn't give Paris a job. Oh, boy, Israel, you know, Jews can do the Jews. But, uh, but Paris ran rings around him. The Israeli ambassador, Yaakov Tsur, was a nice guy. He's always coming, nobody tells me anything. 
you know? No, you have to understand, it's embarrassing. He goes to see the French Prime Minister, the French Prime Minister, oh, I had a great conversation with Paris two hours ago. Paris is in France? <laughs> you know? Nobody, you know, and he feels like a boob, you know? And, it, and, it's, and it's not the right way to do it if you go normal. But what I'm describing to you is the beginning of Israel's second diplomacy, which goes on even today, and they don't talk about it so much, but it's not a total secret either. And you have to understand that's the way the world runs. And through the Mossad and things like that, there are many countries Israel has no relations with, but they do have relations. And I can guarantee you right now, despite what you read in the paper, the Mossad has some kind of situation in Saudi Arabia, as you know I'm talking about, and all these other places. And, and, that, and, that, and even countries that vote against Israel and the ambassador says, kill them all, all the rest of it. But behind the scenes is a second diplomacy. And a different thing is happening. I'm sure somebody read, I don't know if it's true or not, that they train Nelson Mandela or all this kind of business. You know, they, you run all kind of, which is Paris is operating. They run all kind of tricky business because Shimon Paris is like this. I live in the real world. I don't live in the world of Golda Meir. You understand? Where, as Ben-Gurion said like this, he says, we pay the po- Israeli politicians to what? Lechol stekim? You know, they should go to Paris and eat steaks? He says, you know, we, we, uh, we need money. We need value for the money. In true French style, the relationship with Israel develops into an illicit, spicy, and passionate affair. <laughs> the Israelis, this is remarkable, are admitted into the inner sanctums of French politics and French military secrets. It's astonishing. You don't know what I'm talking about. They will have discussions, and they'll call Paris to come into the French cabinet and raise a foreigner and tell them, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? They'll have top-secret meetings of the French general staff, and they'll bring in Paris and Moshe Dayan and say, what do you think about such and such and so forth? These are the top meetings. They'll get, they will permit the top Israeli nuclear scientist into the sanctum sanctorum, the Kodesh HaKadoshim, of the, of, the, of the French secret nuclear project. France eventually got an A-bomb in 1960. Okay? So this is, because the French are angry. America has one, Russia has one, England has one not giving us. We're going to make our own. And they pour a lot of time and effort. That's a real country, France, with a, you know, a whole scientific establishment. And you can just imagine, their, this is their Manhattan Project. Okay? And foreigners are off limit, and they have high security, all the rest of it. Oh, the Israelis, that's a different story. No, I'm serious. That's a different story. The Israelis are the Israelis. You know? I mean, how can you compare that? Uh, the uh, Issa Harel, well, you know, they, 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 they give them all the house secrets. It's just, it's quite remarkable. You understand? French, uh, I mean, Israeli officers, diplomats, and things like this, if they're part of Paris' network, are allowed in. It's an affair. You know, it's, it's, it's just absolutely astonishing. Um, the best story is, um, now I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm making a point. After the Sinai campaign was over, this will be for next time, he said, I mean, next year or something like that. After the Sinai campaign was in 57, the French uh, Force Republic is falling apart. Just take me. And eventually be taken over by the Gaul and changed into the Fifth Republic. The last government, right, the last cabinet, Prime Minister is Bourges Manoury. Right? And he says to Paris, he says, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know how we're going to solve Algeria and their armies in revolt and this and, that and the other, but we're going to get you that A bomb. Right? And Paris is on the phone with Bourges Manoury, he's in, in two rooms outside. Okay, in the French, uh, what's they call the Hotel Maintenon or something, uh, the, where, where they have the central government structure. And uh, the last thing Bourgeois does before he resigns, as the thing is, he passes it around, they take a formal vote, the, a secret vote, of course, a formal vote to give Israel the A bomb. Wow. You understand? And notice he's more worried about Israel that they should get their bomb than he's worried about France falling apart. How do you explain this? <laughs> it, 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 you know, they got hooked 
on Israel. Okay, they lost their mind for a while, and they hoped for, this would this would happen, and they hoped on Israel. And uh, and when Charles de Gaulle becomes the president a year or two later, he doesn't like this at all. Okay, and uh, when Charles de Gaulle goes to the Kodesh Kadoshim of the Manhattan Project, uh, it's a famous story. He he goes in and he's shocked because he sees all the cars in the parking lot, they're all French license plates. One of them has Israel license plates. What the heck is that? He said, oh, that's Shalhebifra. He's here all the time. You can't have a foreign thing in France. No, that's Israel. It's different. You understand? And he gets into a big fight with, with Jacques Sustel, who's the, uh, the minister in charge of the, the nuclear development, all the rest of it. And Sustel says, the Israelis are not foreigners. That's a different story. And they fight over this for three years until finally they push Sustel out of office. Uh, it's crazy. You see? This is one of the main reasons why Israel eventually gets an atomic bomb, which for a country of two million with no money is, is, is nuts. Right? I mean, you know, it doesn't make any sense. They piggyback totally on the French. Why would the French do it? It's the Fourth Republic, my friends. Right? The, the, the France, you know, they, they lost their head in the love affair. That, that's what happened. Um, the French love affair with Israel during these years extends even to the people of Israel who were admired as unique heroic, and even saintly. Here's General Koenig, was the defense minister. He's in charge of the French, right? Our friend from before, from the fight. He's the defense minister. He comes to Israel, and he meets Malcolm Begg, and the others, they say like this, you have Saint uh, Louis, and Saint Bernard, and all that. In Israel, we have a real saint, you know? Ari Levin. The Tzadik of Yerushalayim. And so he says, oh, let me see him. And he meets him, look, look, look at this. And he, says, he comes away, enchanté. He says, I'm enchanted, all the rest of it. There's a story, I don't know if it's true, but he says, there's a story where he says, the Arya says, I see, after talking to you, you really are very saintly and all the rest of it. Why don't you curse Nasser? You know? <laughs> Give him a claw. <laughs> after all, even the Jews say, Tzadik Geyser, Kaddish You know? So why don't you, why do we need all this military buildup? Just give him a thing, your, your mom's a saint. And Arya Levin says something along the lines, he says, I don't give, you know, I was raised, you don't curse anybody, just give brachas. But I'm willing to give Nasser a bracha, Nasser a bracha, he should be zechah to see B.S. HaMashiach B'meheri 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 Which Which would probably be his biggest nightmare. The, uh, but uh, who would imagine that somebody like Marie-Pierre Koenig, you know, a, a, a real Catholic and an army officer, all the rest of it, and he said, Enchanté, come to Israel, and, and meaning all this sort of thing. It's the 50s. By the way, who were the defense ministers in the year 54, 55, and 56? The men who ran the entire French army, French Air Force, the atomic bomb program, and all the rest. Who were the political leaders more powerful than the mandarins of the Kaiser side? Well, there were two defense ministers at that time. <laughs> this guy and this guy, the two, the two best friends of Israel. You understand? It's, it's a remarkable story over there. Um, and for the first time since Israel became a state, Israel finds friends for whom supplying Israel is a lachatchila and not a bidiyev, it's something they want to do. I'll read you a piece from Paris's uh, autobiography where he says, the end of 54, I went to Paris with a personal letter to General Kinnick from Ben-Gurion. I arrived on a Friday evening and after all the offices were closed, it was only the next day that I could tell him for, for a meeting. He's not exactly Shamashavis. Anyway, um, it was promptly arranged an unlikely day and hour, 4 p.m. on Sunday, because France thinks they're not supposed to run on Sunday. I teamed up with our defense ministry representative, and we went to General Koenig, defense minister, the hero of battle, Bir Hakim, which I showed you before, the reputation of the great fighting man, made a few words, knew a lot about Israel and the fate of the Jews, I was surprised to see. And he had met units of our guys in the Libyan desert. He met Haganah guys fighting with, the, with Montgomery and so forth. He listened to our arms request. 
He asked a few questions, and then he gave a decision on the spot with characteristic brevity. I agree, give me your list. I promise to have the list tomorrow morning, which is Monday morning by 10 o'clock. Never will if I get the, first, the telephone call, because Paris is a Jew, you know, so you're not on time. So he gets the phone call at 10 o'clock, and Kenneth is on the line, and his tone was impatient. It's already 10, where's your list? Right? This is the beginning of a long and deep friendship, etc., etc., etc. And because of this, we got the first tanks and the guns. The tanks were the AMX-13, a fast and light tank, and the gun was 155 millimeter, etc., etc., etc. So here you find, and these guys were the defense chiefs of France in the mid-50s. Okay? So it's a remarkable story, obviously. Um, in 1956, the relationship intensifies because, first of all, Nasser starts to get serious Soviet weapons. Talked about last week. The Russians really kicked in. Take a look at this. All right? You can see it, right? So Nasser starts to do this. Israel freaks out. Uh, uh, the French do also. He says, this is a Russian invasion in the Middle East. Here's Nasser reviewing the troops. Okay? Is that it? That's me? Okay, fine. And um, these weapons are game changers. Uh, like the Iranian bomb today. And like the Iranian bomb, the USA is not really going to do anything about it other than to assure Israel that they don't need to be worried. There's a certain continuity between him and him. Okay? Between Eisenhower and Obama. Anthony Eden, the British, he hates Israel. First of all, he was anti-Semitic. Second of all, he hates Israel for threatening Jordan. Which is true. Israel was threatening Jordan. Because Israel would like to take over the West Bank. Ben-Gurion, Dayan, give me a break. Okay? So he doesn't like them. So England's not going to give any weapons to Israel to balance the Soviet weapons going to Egypt. Uh, Molotov, so he's the foreign minister again, uh, yet. Yeah, right? Molotov is not going to, he, he meets with Charette in Geneva in 55, but he says, uh, we're not going to do it. Um, and anyway, Molotov says, with that Russian hypocrisy, how can these weapons be a threat? They're purely for defensive purposes. Right? And Ben-Gurion writes a letter and says, I understand you perfectly. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. Uh, at the same time that this is going on, on January 2nd, 1956, the beginning of 1956, the socialists win the French elections uh, in big time. And the prime minister now is Guy Mollet and Christian Pino, both members of the resistance, okay, pro-Israel. Now, in addition to the other sympathy we had before, the usual sympathy for embattled democratic Israel, there's the factor of socialist solidarity. Because uh, here's Guy Mollet, <coughs> I'm Mollet, Visiting with Golda Meir, the, the Women's International Zion or something in Israel, a few years later. I mean, um, from the Labor Party, from the Mapai. You understand? There's the uh, communist types and there's the democratic socialists, especially in, in, in Europe. And democratic socialists take social very seriously and should be democratic and it should be all that sort of thing. And where, where do you find in the whole Asia a democratic socialist country? Is one. <laughs> okay? Uh, I mean, Nasser calls himself socialist as a dictatorship. You know that, right? All across uh, Asia, you know what you're dealing with, okay? There's one democratic socialist country. And uh, Ben-Gurion even says to Malay, since you cannot let a, a fellow socialist down in Malay, says, you're right, we will not let our socialist friends down in Israel. Um, they both belong members of what used to be called the Second International, I think it's called the Society, the, the League of Democratic Socialists uh, in countries and things like this. By this time, in 56, the Israeli military strategists have come to the conclusion that a war with Egypt will be decided in the air. Okay? Air power, all important. And you and I know this was confirmed 10 years later, 11 years later, in the Six-Day War, 
not this, right? I mean, I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about over here. When you take a look at this video, and Israel caught the Egyptians with the pants down. They, they wiped out the Air Force on the ground, right? I mean, you know, all these things, they're destroying the Egyptian Air Force on the ground. That is how Israel won the war. Because once you gain air power, then it doesn't matter if the other guy has the tanks, because you could use the air power to destroy the tanks and do things like that. That's modern warfare. And so Israel, in 55, especially in 56, planes, planes, planes. The Russians are giving them MiGs, which are the best fighters. They're giving them the bomber planes and all this stuff. Ben-Gurion, oh my God, Ben-Gurion is, is going crazy over here. Ben-Gurion lived in the Blitz. He was in London during the Blitz. So he said, I can't have that in Tel Aviv. It'll be a horror. All right? Ben-Gurion lived through, through this because uh, he visited London, I think it was there in 1940, 41, whatever it was, uh, during the Second World War. And, I mean, it's, it's interesting to watch in a movie, but it's not interesting to live through, you understand. And look, excuse me, look at the horrors that the British went through and all destruction. God forbid they should hit Tel Aviv or Haifa. And that's it, right? And this is his nightmare. And uh, like I say, we've got to have planes. We've got to have the best fighters. Israel must get excellent jet fighters, the ultra-modern weaponry, or we die. You see? Now, General Koenig, who's the defense minister, and Bush Manri, who's the defense minister, they make it happen. And because of them, Israel gets the Mystere planes and the Mirage planes. These are, they, they become the backbone of the IAF. In the 50s, what you just saw when Israel wiped out the Egyptian Air Force on the ground, there was all French planes. There were the Israeli Mirages and the Mysteres. Okay? And uh, there, there were no American planes. America did not sell a single plane to Israel until um, LBJ at the end of his term. Uh, President Johnson is a famous thing. He broke the, the embargo and sold Israel 60 uh, planes. And it really stopped a start under Nixon. You say what you want, but Nixon is the one who turned on the spigot. You know, whatever people want to think about Nixon, he's the one that started giving Israel real, real weapons. Okay? And, um, and especially the, the, what do you call the, the phantom planes and all the rest of it. You know, if you're old enough, you'll remember this. The point is, until then, in the 50s and 60s, they got nothing from the U.S. So it all depended on the French connection. You see? And it was you know, Israel's uh, life and security hung on a string, and the string had been constructed by Paris. <laughs> you see, you can't take it away. Uh, I don't agree with everything he's done. He's made some big mistakes. But in the 50s, he was hot. And uh, although Israel pays top dollar, uh, which helps the French aircraft industry, I can assure you by the time Paris was finished, later in the 50s, France will be subsidizing the arms sales. So in effect, the Fourth Republic is giving the planes to Israel for free. You understand? And he did the same thing. Paris is an amazing guy if they just would have gotten out of his way. I know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm talking about the 50s and 60s. Golda Meir blocked him, and this one blocked him because of, you know, uh, what do you call it, uh, turf wars and things like that for stupid reasons. Uh, if you leave it up to him, in, in, in the area of acquisition of weapons and that sort of thing, he was just amazing. Um, uh, Asa Weitzman, of course, being the commander of the Air Force, who's the one who teaches them how to fly these brand new planes, um, and also the cousin of our Elbams over here. And at the same time, the remarkable Mr. Paris is creating an Israeli armaments industry. Shimon Paris is the one who creates the Israeli military industrial complex from companies like Tadiran, who you're familiar with because they make the refrigerators, but they're really for the military purposes, to oh, dozens of, com- dozens of companies, which he starts up because it's a socialist country can do that, and he has all the money. He can start up all the companies, and uh, Israel, he says, needs to get a modern weapons uh, industry program going. Uh, this is where they make the Uzis, Eventually, as you know, Israel created its own fighter planes. Eventually, as you know, Israel created its own tanks. 
and all that kind of business, because we can't go around constantly begging everybody else. One day they won't give us. So we have it itself. Here is Paris in the 50s, 58, showing the king of Nepal around to buy Israeli airplanes. <laughs> okay? Well, you know, in other words, they're probably old by this time and uh, turn into some money. This is very typical of what he's doing. He really was an amazing guy in those years. Okay? He was an amazing guy in those years. Thus, and with this I conclude, the foundation was laid in the years 1952 to 56 for the most intimate sort of relationship between Israel and the Fourth Republic. It was this highly unusual relationship, extremely unusual for a proudly selfish country like France, which laid the foundation for Israel's audacious Sinai campaign, a campaign which shocked and astonished the world, and which established Israel as a military force to be reckoned with. But that'll be for next week. There's General Kinnig meeting Moshe Dayan in Israel Independence Day in 1958. Um, as I say, we'll pick up the story next week. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.